Welcome to the AFP Report. This is your host, John Friend. Today is Thursday, September 28th, 2023. The AFP Report is a podcast series where I will be interviewing reporters and contributors to American Free Press, America's last real newspaper, as well as other special guests. Please consider subscribing to the newspaper if you are not already. Subscription details can be found at AmericanFreePress.net. And today I'm joined once again by Dr. Kevin Barrett a regular contributor to the newspaper. All right, Dr. Kevin Barrett, welcome back to the program, sir. How are you today? I'm well. Good to be back with you, John. Yeah, it's always nice to speak with you. You are, of course, a regular columnist for American Free Press, America's last real newspaper. And I also follow you on Twitter. You're at TruthJihad on Twitter. And you maintain your own Substack page, which is kevinbarrett.substack.com. It's Kevin's newsletter, and I know you post quite a bit over there, and then you are also a featured columnist for the UNS Review, which is UNS.com. So I follow your work in all of those places. And then, of course, like I mentioned, you are a regular contributor to American Free Press, and today we are going to focus on the most recently published issue of the newspaper. That's issue 39 and 40. You had a very interesting article about Russell Brand in that in that in that um, issue of the newspaper that we're gonna we're gonna kind of highlight and focus on. Um, before we do that, though, I just wanted to mention um, if you're not subscribing to the newspaper, you really should be. American Free Press really is America's last real newspaper, and it's one of the last remaining sort of populist, independent. America first type publications that you'll find in the country and it still is a print newspaper an old school print newspaper which I myself very much appreciate Um, so consider subscribing if you're not already the website is AmericanFreePress.net and you can find all of the subscription details there now dr. Barrett did I uh, did I plug all your other platforms sufficiently before we kind of jump in Uh, definitely I think you got enough of them (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you kind of got to you kind of got to bounce around from different platforms considering all the censorship going on these days. I mean, I'm I'm surprised that I'm even able to maintain a personal um a twi- Twitter profile, you know, with all the censorship on that platform, but I guess if they don't censor you, they just totally deamplify you, deboost you so nobody can even find your content unless they go specifically to your page. And that's a topic we'll also be talking about. We've been covering the whole situation with Elon Musk and the ADL, the ban the ADL uh, hashtag and now there's this massive boycott uh, that was just announced or it, it's it's a a campaign to basically demand a boycott from some of the the big advertisers on Twitter and also um, a call to ban the Google and Apple um, stores from hosting the uh, X or Twitter app on their platform. So we'll talk about that as well. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely did want to mention um, your other platforms, and I'll have those linked when I post this podcast program over at AmericanFreePress.net. Um, so Dr. Barrett, let's jump into issue 39 and 40. It's going to be going to the printer actually later on today. And it will be mailed out to subscribers tomorrow, uh, Friday, September 29th. And I want to start off by talking about the uh, the headline article, which I wrote. It's titled Urban Anarchy, Soft on Crime Policies Fuel Violence in Cities Across the U.S. And as we were kind of putting together the paper this week, there were several stories that broke that really just demonstrate how 
completely out of control the United States has become with violence and just criminal mayhem in pretty much every major American city breaking out on seemingly a daily basis. There were massive riots and looting that took place in Philadelphia earlier this week, which was kind of how I I let off the story. Um, There were just mobs of almost exclusively black thugs looting and destroying private property. They were looting. uh, There's an area in Philadelphia called Center City, which is like right in the heart of downtown Philadelphia. I don't know if you've ever been to that city, but I was there um, not this past summer, but the summer before. And it's a really uh, kind of an upscale, you know, nice like shopping area. And, you know, there's like all the top stores. I know the the thugs had looted a Lululemon, um, you know, designer clothing store, an Apple store and some other stores as well. And the videos that emerged on Twitter and other social media were just, I mean, really shocking. I mean, this it, it reminded me of like the 2020 George Floyd um, instigated riots and looting that we saw across the country. And all of this, of course, was spurred on by a Philadelphia cop having all charges dismissed against him. Um, He was involved in a shooting of a criminal who was wielding a knife, who led officers on a high-speed pursuit in, you know, like residential areas in Philadelphia. And he was not cooperating, of course, with officers. And like I said, he was wielding a knife. And there's body cam footage of this. And I mean, it's tragic anytime anybody loses their life. But um, and, and I'm certainly like no blind supporter of law enforcement. I do respect the institution, but I think it's been very much politicized. And, you know, cops oftentimes make a lot of like make a lot of mistakes and engage in some really unjustified, outrageous behavior. But in this case, I mean, it, it's seemed pretty cut and dry what happened. I mean, the judge uh, that was, um, you know, looking into this case, uh, you know, that was hearing the case, looked at the charges and 100% agreed with the police officer's defense attorneys who argued that there was just simply no evidence to justify any of the charges that Philadelphia's district attorney, Larry Krasner, a Jewish Soros-funded district attorney who's one of these far-left, soft-on-crime district attorneys that seem to to be in charge of like pretty much every major American city these days. This guy brought a slew of charges against this officer, including first-degree murder and many other very serious charges, and all of them were dismissed. Um, You know, the judge looked into it and, and... was like, look, there's just no evidence to to justify any of these charges. And this, of course, led to massive protests, which ultimately culminated in these really outrageous and and, and shocking videos of these just total thugs rioting and looting and attacking people. And it's just outrageous. This is something that you would expect to see in like a third world country, which is quickly what America is turning into. Thanks to some of these policies. So I'm curious. There was a couple other examples that I could maybe talk about that I highlighted in this front page article. But I'm just curious. Um, do, do you have any reaction to this? Did you see any of the any of these savage videos that came out of Philadelphia earlier this week? You know, I haven't actually looked at those. I've seen some uh, looting and you know mass shoplifting stuff in the past, and I can well imagine. And I, I do have the article in front of me now. So I see the, uh, the picture, which is still from one of those videos on the front page of this week's American free press. 
And yeah, and one thing I would have to say, though, is that saying this is something you would see in the third world is kind of an insult to the third world and not entirely accurate because, you know, most of what used to be called the third world, which is the, you know, not the U.S. and Europe and Australia and Japan and, and the Soviet Union, the ex-Soviet Union satellites, but all these other so-called developing countries, most of those countries don't have anything like this happening uh, that's, either, <laughs> much yeah, at all that's, on a regular basis. No, you're you're so right. Thank you for pointing that out. I guess um, I 100 percent agree with you. I mean, you know, you don't you really don't see this in, in quote unquote third world countries. I guess that's just something that always like a knee jerk response, I guess, that somebody like me would have. You're, but you're absolutely right. I mean, this is something that you pretty much only exclusively see in the West these days. Um, yeah. And Especially yeah. the U.S. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, no, that's that's an excellent point. Very, very well taken. Right. Yeah, it's, it's kind of the opposite. You know, I have an American friend who spent a bunch of time in, in Mali uh, and it, it really in a really poor area of uh, the big city, a uh, very, very poor neighborhood. And I think he was horrified once to see that there was a an attempted shoplifting. And what happens in that kind of situation is basically everybody goes after the shoplifter. And in this case, they like beat him to death. <laughs> so uh, they don't tolerate shoplifting in in uh, Timbuktu <laughs> Un, unlike unlike in America where it will and, and even in like California where the state law literally decriminalized shoplifting for anything under a thousand dollars I think it is so I mean they, they don't even prosecute people for this sort of criminal behavior meanwhile in a country like Mali as you said you know you steal something and the whole neighborhood's coming after you yeah I think that would happen you know I don't think anybody would necessarily get killed but here in Morocco uh People would not be advised to try any conspicuous shoplifting in the souk. You know, you'd be seen, and uh, just not a good idea. So, yeah, this is this is like an American thing, and this kind of you know frenzied, outpouring stuff that we see after these police abuses or alleged police abuses. Some of them really are, and some of them aren't. Uh, but people now are kind of re- a lot of these people just reacting in a knee-jerk way. I see this has happened over the years because in the past, I think there really was a systematic problem in American policing in which police either, you know, not all of the police were actually major abusers, but most of them were at least kind of implicated in covering up for the abusers. And some of them were really bad. Like it's like, you know, 2% of the police was just total psychopaths and nobody would ever hold them to account. And if you complain to your police accountability board, it's guaranteed to be turned down because it's all owned by these people who answer the police union. For whatever reason, the police union is covering up for the psychopaths. So there was a really bad situation and there were no cameras in those days. So these cops could get away with anything and they systematically would lie to cover up these things. And it created really poisoned the atmosphere. And now that there are cameras everywhere, I think the cops behavior is much better than it used to be. And even so now in some of these cases where they're not even really, you know, blatant police abuses that something gets caught on camera and, you know, something unfortunate happens to somebody uh, like George Floyd, for example, who he might have died from a drug overdose, not from any uh, effects of the uh, constriction of the neck area by the knee. So it's, it's, Absolutely. it's actually that. Yeah, that particular case is not clear cut and dry the way that the protesters claimed that it was. And likewise, a lot of these other cases as well, including this one in Philly. And so I, I think we're seeing sort of a delayed reaction to decades of covering up 
psychopathic behavior by a tiny minority of cops. That's one thing. The other thing, though, is that this, I think it's being uh, deliberately orchestrated and not by anybody even in the black community. I, I think this is being deliberately orchestrated by the folks who want to put the retailers out of business, the people who would rather have you shopping on Amazon and, and the Internet. Uh, they would rather have you, you know, scanned so that when you walk into the store, you'll be, you know, chip will be read or your, your biometric data will be read. And so whatever you walk out of the store with, you'll get uh, debited for it. And so there's no longer any such thing as shoplifting. So I think these kinds of uh, technological changes, putting the middle class mom and pop stores out of business, forcing everybody to shop either from Amazon or you know go to Walmart and have Walmart read your chip as you leave and just tally up what you walked out with automatically. Uh, this is the sort of thing I think they're trying to accomplish. So I think there's actually a deliberate attempt to foster this kind of behavior. And it's not just you know natural anger at the police. Wow, yeah, that's an interesting angle that I hadn't really thought about. And yeah, you certainly see that sort of promotion by, you know, like the World Economic Forum and the UN and, you know, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And this all really came to the fore during the whole COVID-19 scamdemic where, you know, there's these very creepy Orwellian, like New World Order tyrannical society videos coming out where, as you're saying, you like go in, you have to like scan your face to get into the store and then everything's all digital. And, and you see some of this stuff being rolled out. So that wouldn't that certainly wouldn't surprise me um, that that is an aspect to this. I think I mean, really, we've seen in a lot of this got kickstarted. I mean, there's it's sort of always been happening a little bit in the background, but it really got started with the whole Trayvon Martin situation where a story was so fundamentally portrayed dishonestly by the mass media, almost like the opposite of what they said. You know, the Trayvon Martin thing, that's what really kind of led to the whole Black Lives Matter movement. And then, you know, we saw a number of other examples of um, mostly black young men being either apprehended or, or actually killed, you know, as they're being pursued by police in, in, in many of these high profile cases, totally justifiably so. And we ju we've just seen how dishonest the media is when it comes to handling these cases. And, it, you know, it, it basically now we're at a point where everything is blamed on white supremacy or systemic racism. And we see public policy being implemented with th this in mind, where like the, this, these criminal actions are like oftentimes excused and even justified by this false narrative of, you know, white supremacy or racism or whatever against against blacks. It's just it's really I mean, they, they've just created this very divisive um, sort of culture in society these days where you can't even have like an honest conversation with with many people about these topics because it's just so one sided on, on either side. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. You know, I'm I, I find a lot of the really strong sort of anti black stuff that I come across in the comments section at the Uns Review where I publish to be pretty obnoxious. On the other hand, I think that you know some of their critiques of the you know the so-called anti-racists are actually largely correct, and that you know the the truth of the matter is that the anti-racists, for the most part, and this includes but you know both the the black people and the and the anti so-called anti-racist you know white people, the Antifa and all these kinds of people, I don't think either they don't really care about the black community and black people, or they are so misinformed that they might as well not care because the kinds of policies that they're advocating 
actually make things a lot worse for American right. black people. This is something we should keep in mind. That it's you know like in the ends review, a lot of these these white people who are mad at black people are just blaming the black people for everything and making it sound like crime is nothing but black people you know beating up on white people. But that's actually not the case. You know, the, the, it's true that uh, the black community has a much higher street crime rate, like much higher. It's kind of shocking. And that's actually being covered up by the mainstream media and, and the universities and so on. But the majority of the victims of that crime actually are black, too. And so, right. uh, yeah. And, and, yeah. And, and so that black people in America do not want to defund the police. Uh, they're the last people in America who want to defund the police. So when Antifa comes in response to things like George Floyd by trying to, you know, eliminate police, defund the police, get the police, you know, out of the black neighborhoods, the vast majority of black people do not like that because they know it's going to make things even worse. Right. I think, yeah, we should use some common sense here and look for some common ground. Well, and if you look at like, you know, in the aftermath of George Floyd, you, you looked at like some of the main champions of like the whole defund the police type um argument and movement a lot of them were these like totally brainwashed white liberals you know at the at the local level or at the state level and some of these activist organizations and you're right you know when they did actually implement some of these policies it just led to even more violent crime and demands to refund the police i mean it was a sort of uh you know once they actually implemented these totally backwards ridiculous policies they they majorly regretted it um, and one thing that I always I mean to me this is the most important angle is the role that the media plays in instigating all this and really just totally distorting the narrative I mean and, and here's here's two perfect examples of, of what I mean by this earlier this summer um, there was this horrific video that came out of New York City and there was like these five younger I think they were younger they, they were probably like I don't know exactly their ages but some some of them look like they were in their 20s one of them may have been older like in their 40s or 50s but it was like these five black people just totally pummeling this taxi driver on the streets of Manhattan. You know, all of them are black. The, the taxi driver looked like he was either white or maybe like Middle Eastern, you know, definitely like not black, basically. So it was like these black thugs beating up this non-black taxi driver in the middle of the street in like downtown Manhattan. And, you know, the, the reporting on and this, there's video of this. You can, you know, go watch it and you'll see the the racial dynamics involved here. And the way like the New York Post, for example, reported on it, they described these the, the, these five thugs as a gang of brutes. Now, could you imagine if a group of five white men like beat the crap out of a black taxi driver, how that would be reported in the New York Post or any other mainstream publication? The, the racial angle would be played up. It would be white supremacy all over again. There'd be massive protests. There'd be nonstop coverage you know all of our political leaders would be talking about it it would be it, it would be a much different scenario rather than this one was and another good example that i highlighted in this article was this young kid in chicago walking down the street just earlier this week as well eating a slice of pizza and two quote-unquote brutes once again and of course these are two black large black thugs came up sucker punched the guy in the back of the head beat the crap out of him, robbed him. I mean, just totally out of the blue. I mean, this guy's just walking down the street, minding his own business on a nice sunny day. And he gets blindsided with a punch to the back of the head. He gets beat up. He gets kicked. He gets robbed. I mean, it's just outrageous. And again, imagine if the races were reversed 
And it was two white guys that came up and did this to a black guy walking down the street eating a slice of pizza. I mean, it would be, an, again, a national news story. It would be all over the media. We'd be talking about it for months on end. There'd be riots and looting probably in major cities across the country. There'd be demands for reparations and, and all this sort of nonsense. So the way that all this is covered or not covered, I guess, when it's whites being attacked, I think is very, very blatant and it's clear that there is like an agenda behind this, right? Yeah, well, they. I think the media is, of course, always going, especially you know, in, in today's atmosphere, the racial side. It's always going to be reported one-sidedly, as you say. That's absolutely right. On the other hand, it's also true that I think whatever is the case in these various alleged racist incidents where white racism is blamed for playing a role in some kind of violent attack on some black person somewhere, whether it's police or, or civilians, that in, in those cases, maybe some of the time it isn't really very racial. But in the case of these uh, black thugs attacking non-black people, uh, and there's another case that Lyndon just wrote about recently of some teenagers running down some guy on a bicycle in Las Vegas and filming it. I saw I mean, that was, horrific, yeah. horrific stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you see an awful lot of this stuff. And it certainly does seem like the vast majority of the perpetrators of this kind of street street crime are black. Uh, and since blacks are only 15 percent of the population, that means that we're talking about a really huge uh, disproportion here. And so no wonder people are racist. I mean, this is the thing is that what the media is covering up is the fact that that a lot of this tension between races does is related to this very high uh, street crime rate in the black community that other races tend to shy away from for good reason. I mean, here in Morocco, average people basically would be called black. Like you take an average Moroccan to America, they'd be assumed to be very possibly black, like at least as black as Barack Obama, which I guess isn't all that black. But anyway, the Moroccan people uh, actually have their, I, I've talked to a few who are kind of, you know, a little bit terrorized uh, of the image of American black people. You know, just because of all this stuff they see in the media. Now, obviously, average, you know, pick a random American black person and they're not, you know, the chances are 99 percent. They're not going to be one of these people doing these terrible things. But let's face it, that community is producing an awful lot of this thuggish behavior compared to other communities. And that's a real problem. And the media is covering it up, doesn't want to talk about it. Nobody wants to talk about it. It's like some kind of weird sort of neurotically, psychologically repressed topic. And along with this is like, what would the solutions be? Well, like if you could talk about the truth about what's really going on, you could start talking about solutions. You know, different cultures have different ways of organizing themselves so as to produce a calm, tranquil, happy society. And I think the way that, you know, the, the majority culture and the ruling elite in America are ruling you know the black community is just not working at all and like the obvious first place to start there is with the encouragement of births out of wedlock you know the black community was not this bad in the 1930s 40s and 50s 
And then in the 60s, when the welfare system started paying women to have children outside of wedlock, that blew up the black family. Black families always had a hard time. You know, they were slavery really messed with the family structure and that left scars on the community. And that was a source of a lot of the problems already. And so they just made it a million times worse by uh, blowing up the black family, by basically encouraging people to have children when they're not married. And I mean, that that's the single biggest factor that's led to all of this and a lot more pathologies in the black community. And so if we had an honest discussion about this, we'd figure out, you know, with, and of course, obviously, black Americans would take the lead in this discussion about how to run their community so as to fix this. And to my mind, groups like the Nation of Islam have it right, which is, you know, be, you know, really be brutal on these kinds of thugs. I mean, you really cannot tolerate them. You know, the Nation of Islam moves into some place where they're dealing drugs and says, you stop dealing drugs. Well, you better stop dealing drugs. And sometimes that kind of harsh approach is necessary in certain kinds of communities. Uh, and then likewise, the role of religion is so important. Uh, African-Americans have a genius for religion. They're, I mean, if you've been to black churches, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm Muslim, right? But if I, you know, if you say, let's go to church this Sunday, I would, I would opt for a black church. They're so, the, you know, you really feel the mystical joy and, and you know, there's, there's an energy there that's, that's palpable. And you look at the successful black communities, often there's a religious element. You know, Islam has made a lot of black people a lot, you know, given them much better lives, given certain kind of discipline and stuff. So and, and being connected with with the uh, the ultimate values and with with the you know, sort of transcendence, let's say, I think to me, that's necessary for everybody. For me personally, it is right. I mean, just, you know, I, I'm, I may be white or northern European in ancestry, but I'm probably I wasn't such a great citizen in a lot of ways before I became a practicing Muslim. And I think that the black community, they probably could benefit from, you know, rather having their religion torn down, which is what the secular liberals have been doing now for decades, having religion strongly encouraged and having it be a very strong form of religion that is going to make sure that there is no thuggery and there are dope no dope dealers like the NOI. That's the kind of solution that they need. And guess what? The right. establishment media is not going to ever promote that. On the contrary, they're going to censor and attack the nation of Islam. Yeah, no, you're making a lot of good points. And I think and I've been saying this for a long time, going back to, gosh, when I first started writing for American Free Press, covering some of these more racially charged topics and, you know, like the the Black Lives Matter movement and some of those sorts of things. And one thing that was very apparent, like right from the beginning, when I started getting into these subjects was there's just no accountability when it comes to the black community, at least like at an institutional level, the media is excusing this sorts of behavior and even justifying it in some cases. And like this black activist class and these like liberal activist groups, of course, do the same thing. They excuse this behavior. They justify it in some cases. And again, they blame everything on white supremacy or systemic racism or lack of opportunity or whatever. It's always an excuse, basically. And there's never accountability for committing these sorts of crimes. And then when they, in some cases, actually are arrested, they're let off, you know, early. I mean, another example I point out in this article, there was this uh, total like career, very violent, uh, sexually violent, um, physically violent criminal uh, that was released early. I think he was released like 20 years early. He had like a 30 year prison sentence. 
and only served like 11 years. I actually saw earlier that it was reported he only served nine years. So I'm not sure exactly if it was nine or 11, but he served like a third of his sentence and they let him out. And almost immediately, he's out there raping and murdering once again. He murdered a 26-year-old woman, a, a white woman named Pava LaPierre um, on September 24th in Baltimore. And they just finally arrested this guy late last night. Um, and it's just outrageous. I mean, this is the sort of – this is what happens when we do not enforce the, the rule of law in this country or when it's so politicized – the rule of law is being brought to bear on, in many cases, innocent people simply protesting at the U.S. Capitol, while criminals like this, who are violent sexual offenders that should be either executed or behind bars for life, are let off after only serving you know, a, a third of their sentence. And then they go back out on the streets and they commit the same exact gruesome crimes that they were originally arrested for. It's outrageous. Yeah, yeah, it is. And again – Solving that problem, it's not going to be just, you know, locking people up longer, although that probably is, you know, has played a, a role in lowering crime rates, you know, which actually have overall gone down uh, since the 1980s and 90s. Uh, I, I actually lived in uh, black neighborhoods, borderline black neighborhoods like Fillmore in San Francisco back then. And yeah, I used to play basketball with black folks. And uh, I ended up over in Emeryville by Oakland, another uh, kind of borderline black neighborhood. So uh, I, I remember back then, and I, you know, I remember my friends, the female friends, got their purses snatched quite regularly by black teenagers. But people also knew that the people who were breaking into your car or stealing your stereo were probably actually Hispanics. There's this whole sort of – and then there were Chinese gangs. Uh, I knew a Chinese guy turned out. I understand may have been a bank robber, <laughs> but so so there are all different sorts of racial links to different types of crime. Let's face it, whites and probably especially Jewish whites are way overrepresented in the biggest kind of crime, which is white collar crime or scams or you know the kind of crime that rich people commit. Uh, so yeah, there there are the all these kinds of links, and then there are ways of trying to approach all of these things and solve these problems. Current establishment in the United States has seems to have no interest in actually genuinely solving pretty much any problems. They just want to make everything worse. Uh, if I were a crazy conspiracy theorist, I think there was some kind of conspiracy by the elite in the United States to just totally trash the country. Ah, uh, if you were a conspiracy theorist, <laughs> I guess you can't you can't uh, you can't connect, you can't connect dots and observe objective reality without being called a conspiracy theorist anymore. So, sign me up, I guess. <laughs> Um, well, okay. Yeah, yeah. I think that I, I kind of want to move on. I mean, uh, that front page story is uh, covers a lot of just recent examples of just how out of control this country has become. I mean, of course, meanwhile, we have endless supplies of money and weapons to send to Ukraine. Uh, you know, state and local governments are having to basically bankrupt their budgets to provide for all these illegal migrants that are coming into the country. The, the, the priorities of the of the federal government of, of even often, you know, local and state governments are just so totally backwards. And meanwhile, you go to any major American city and you better watch, you know, watch your back and make sure, you know, you're not going to get run up and sucker punched. You know, it's just, it's just crazy. The, the quality of life in this country has just suffered tremendously over the course of the past 20 years or more. And a lot of it is a direct result of these soft on crime policies that we see pursued by, in many cases, these Soros funded DAs that seemingly operate in most major American cities these days. So um, that was the featured story in this issue. Um, Dr. Barrett, I want to focus on your story that you wrote about Russell Brand, 
which I found very, very interesting. And I'm sure most people listening are sort of familiar with what's going on with this young man. He was a BBC presenter, and I only recently kind of came across him when he started streaming on Rumble. Uh, because he was like a, a pretty well-known like celebrity type figure, and he started talking about like the COVID conspiracy and some of these like alternative alternative topics that you and I have been discussing and writing about for years. And here was this big name all of a sudden coming on the scene, speaking a lot of truth, um, getting into some very controversial material. And, you know, we see what happens when celebrities go down this route. Next thing you know, there's allegations of, you know, criminality or in his case, you know, some of these women have come out well after the fact. Like we're talking what, like 20 years after the fact, alleging that he raped them. Um, So I have a lot of suspicions about a lot of these allegations and the main point, the main takeaway in your piece is that Russell Brand, and this is very common in these sorts of situations, he's basically being tried by the media. The media is running with this narrative that he's this horrific monster, this rapist, and they're trying to get him canceled. They've, YouTube has already basically canceled him. Uh, he is still on Rumble, but there's this huge campaign led by major advertising firms to remove their advertising and stop doing business with Rumble in an effort to pressure that platform, which is like an alternative to YouTube, basically. Um, So anyways, do you want to maybe, I don't know, you could maybe fill us in on some more of the background details, and then we can kind of talk more about your article. Because I honestly haven't followed this story as closely as I probably should have. And after reading your piece and kind of like just doing some, you know, independent research of my own into it, I realized like, wow, this is actually a, a really important story that hasn't really gotten enough coverage, I think. Well, it's gotten enough coverage from the mainstream media, but from the wrong angle, right? Right. I, yeah, that's my point. Yeah. Big lynch mob going after Russell Brand. Uh, it, it reminds me a little bit of the Julian Assange thing, right, where he was accused of rape, supposedly. And, you know, that's what ended up essentially leading to his de facto life imprisonment. But as it turns out, uh, it sounds like what the this woman actually accused him of was like lying about his relationship status or something like that. And then the other one like accused him of maybe like not using the birth control properly or something like this. So, you know, these, these kinds of, you know, exaggerated often you know, uh, allegations, especially if they're from a long time ago, you know, when something is from a decade or more ago like this, it really kind of makes you wonder if the people who, you know, complain now, like maybe they should have complained back then, like, you know, gone to the police if it's a crime. And so trying somebody in the media today for stuff that supposedly happened 15 years ago just seems very dubious. And you know that's never going to happen to anybody in the establishment, although with the Me Too movement, I guess it did happen to a couple. But it's really convenient for taking down somebody like Russell Brand and setting an example so that other celebrities don't follow that path of leaving the straight and narrow of the mainstream media propaganda machine and then doing their own thing on YouTube and Rumble and so on, joining the alternative media and, and critiquing the mainstream perspective, which is what Russell Brand has done. Yeah. I, do, you, do you know – I'm curious. Do you know when he really started um, down this path? I mean I'm looking on his Rumble channel, and he's got like over 200 videos, I think 212 total. So, I mean, he's been doing video, you know, doing these video interviews and he does like independent commentary and stuff like that. So he's been doing this for a while. But do you know when and and it it almost sounds like 
the whole COVID uh, pandemic was really what kind of brought him out and led him to start speaking out about some of these controversial topics. I think he might have actually been doing alternative type stuff even before COVID, as I recall. I kind of okay, vaguely became right. aware of him because uh, pe- my family members knew who he was. And, you know, maybe partly because I'm an alternative media, they sort of look around at the alternative media landscape. And so he's been somebody that, that you know, people often notice. Uh, so I think it might have been a little before COVID. But then I think he became uh, extra prominent in part because of COVID, because he was questioning the orthodoxy. And he uh, he definitely became better known, you know, among those in the uh, kind of alt-COVID world. Uh, and, of course, that's probably, you know, part of what turned the establishment against him. Uh, because the censorship came down so hard during that period. And, you know, anybody outside the parameters of the propaganda line, you know, became public enemy number one. You know, you're, you're, get, you're getting people, getting millions of people killed because you're, you're casting doubts on vaccination and all this sort of thing. Uh, so I think he became even more controversial at that point. And, right. Well, and, and that's what's so suspicious about these allegations coming out all of a sudden, because he has generated a lot of attention and has led a lot of people to start questioning some of these mainstream narratives, whether it's about COVID or Ukraine, for example, or the vaccines or any number of other important topics. I mean, he's really um, speaking a lot of truth, honestly. I mean, I haven't followed his work all that closely, but just looking at like the titles of his videos He's yeah, he's he's definitely questioning pretty much all the the mainstream globalist promoted narratives anyways. And that's something that uh, they simply cannot tolerate. Yeah, it's funny how you can make a living just by saying what you really think. <laughs> and, uh, you know, people like us sort of figured that out a while back. And, and then, you know, but the problem for the establishment is that if the well-known figures, these charismatic, you know, star level type people like Russell Brand sort of figure this out and more and more of them start doing this and taking away the audience from the mainstream, which it's already happening, of course. You know, Tucker Carlson is now de facto alternative media. And so the mainstream is calling him, oh, the new Alex Jones, ha, ha, ha. Well, the joke's on you, mainstream media, because, you know, the, the alternative media is getting a bigger share of the pie all the time. And they hate that. And I, I really think that it's it's really that, as much as anything, that's behind this persecution of Russell Brand. Okay, so yeah, so like him, like him and I guess just the alternative media more generally, platforms like Rumble being able to challenge and, and legitimately compete with some of these mainstream platforms. Yeah, no, that's a huge part of it. In fact, I mentioned before we started the podcast, I just watched uh, Glenn Greenwald's video, uh, Media Government Wage, Full-Scale War on Rumble for Not Banning Russell Brand. And this is really kind of goes to the heart of this. It's like they're just trying to cancel this man and in the process sabotage and potentially financially ruin Rumble because there was this huge boycott campaign, which we see with Elon Musk and Twitter. It's kind of the kind of a similar type situation. But really, can you imagine, John, anybody who's currently watching Rumble on a regular basis joining such a boycott? No, if you're watching Rumble at this point, I think you're smart enough not to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and not only that, but Rumble has like totally doubled down and like totally supports Russell Brand and is totally opposed to these censorship efforts. I think it was uh, Glenn Greenwald was talking about it in in the video. There was a uh, some committee, I think, as part of like the uh, the gov- government of the United Kingdom, sent uh, Rumble this like demand to like censor Russell Brand and like provide all this information, and Rumble basically just like totally rejected it. Um, in fact, I have a statement 
here from Rumble. Um, I think this is directly from their CEO. It says here, Rumble has been under relentless attack from governments and the mainstream media on various fronts. What they fail to understand is that every attack only emboldens our community and makes us stronger. Rumble was built for pressure and built for these types of moments. Our infrastructure, our ad system, and most importantly, our staff has never been more prepared and ready for whatever comes at us. So I think that's awesome that they're, you know, supporting free free speech and, and not caving into these tyrants who go around just bullying people and, and getting independent content creators banned and, and removed or deplatformed or what does Elon Musk call it? Uh, deamplified. That's uh, I think that's the specific word that he uses to, you know, yeah, sort shadow, of shadow banning is what shadow, he used to call it. Right. I mean, it's basically a nicer way of saying shadow ban, a more politically correct way of saying shadow banned. Uh, but Rumble, uh, I mean, Elon Musk has more or less gone along with all of the demands of the ADL and it's still not good enough. And that's a topic we can talk about as well. Um, but rumble is basically saying, no, look, we support free speech and we're not going to cave. Yeah. And, and what really gets me about this is that, you know, if you're going to talk about, uh, you know, any kind of censorship or, you know, tweaking the dials on, on these uh, forms of media, social media, which, I'm not sure whether they should even be allowed to anyway, because these are common carriers. So they should just be the phone company. Anybody can send whatever message they want. And then if it's illegal, bring in law enforcement. But then they, they're, of course, they're going to argue that there is so much material flowing around on social media that, you know, if we just have that hands off policy, there's going to be so much really bad stuff. It's going to cause so much harm in the real world. And there's actually three uh, Washington Post articles that came out today about the uh, situation in India where Modi's Hindu fascist party has been whipping up uh, hatred and mass murder to win elections uh, using social media. And they're really, really good at it. And when they put out like direct, you know, statements that are, you know, basically, uh, you know, tell, telling their followers to go and kill people, which their followers then do uh, like directly, not, not even hiding it. That's fine with, uh, with, with big social media, right? Facebook India like protected them doing this for a year uh, and so while I was, you know, I had my channel nuked a couple of years ago by YouTube and here I am a, a Muslim, you know, pushing back against incitement to murder Muslims, which is what 9-11 was, right? 9-11 was a plan by enemies of Muslims, namely Zionists, to whip up uh, hatred of Muslims. And that led to the murder of as many as 30 million Muslims, according to Gijin Palia's count. So... I'm actually kind of against inflaming people to go kill people, right? But they nuked my channel. They don't want me to do that. On the other hand, over in India, they're actually giving awards to these people who are filming attacks on Muslim truck drivers who are carrying beef by these crazed Hindus who want to protect cows. So they go out and they murder the truck drivers, and then they go out and you know murder uh, inter interfaith couples, the, they call it love jihad, right? If there's a, if there, one of the two people is a Muslim, the other is a Hindu, they go and kill the Muslim. And, and they call for this and incite it right there on social media. And social media has been protecting them because the government in India run by Modi will come after them if they don't. So there are these double standards. And what bothers me is that, you know, if you're going to do censorship, and frankly, I don't think private corporations in as common carriers really should be. Uh, it should be all done through, you know, transparent uh, process under the rule of law. 
that is by by governments in the public sphere. But in any case, if you're going to do censorship, what you would have the right to censor would be the things that our First Amendment jurisprudence tells us are not legal, are not protected. You know, things like incitement, for example. Like, yeah, direct incitement to violence. Yeah, and they're very right. specific. I mean, there's case precedent to determine exactly what constitutes, you know, direct incitement to violence. And it's certainly not questioning the COVID narrative. It's not questioning 9-11. It's not criticizing Israel. It's not criticizing groups like the ADL or Jewish other Jewish organizations or Jewish politicians or leaders or anything like that. None of that is direct incitement to violence, and yet that's the way those sorts of critiques of mainstream narratives are presented by – Or even indirect. I mean there's right. just like – you look at what Russell Brand does. There's nothing in what Russell Brand does that could remotely come close. You know, I, I suppose that, you know, if he's directly accusing some person, the government of some something, and that that person wants to sue him for a libel or slander, that would be an issue, I guess. But 99.9 percent of this kind of political stuff that's getting censored and shadow banned and such is not. It's not incitement. There's no violence to it. There's nothing to it that would even put it remotely on the radar of anybody uh, trying to say that it's not protected speech. To me, this is like that. That's what the grid. You know, we, we really developed this jurisprudential system in the United States over 200 years to try to sort out what's protected speech and what isn't. And we did a pretty good job. Maybe it needs to be tweaked a little bit for the Internet era. But that should be the basic template. And it's not. Instead, they don't care about incitements to get thousands of people murdered in India, direct incitements. And what they care about is somebody that's not politically correct, who's engaging in classic, thoughtful political speech, not even trying to really rouse up emotions or anything. Just just uh, they have the wrong opinion. They disagree just, with you. Well, yeah, I mean, simply asking questions using their own brain to think critically and independently about information they're consuming. I mean, yeah, <laughs> so that's the biggest danger to the, the global power elite is people actually using their own brain to think critically and independently. And that's what they want to prevent. Um, yeah. So this, uh, this whole situation with Russell Brand is, is very interesting. And I think it, I mean, the main, to me, one of the main points in your article is how he's being tried by the media basically. And how the United States of America has, historically embrace the concept of people that are accused of a crime are considered innocent until proven guilty. Meanwhile, everybody's assuming that he's guilty thanks to the way the media is covered, you know, the mainstream media has covered the situation. And it, it, it seems to be a clear attempt to not only cancel Russell Brand and get him in trouble and, you know, deplatform him, but also to target Rumble itself for not caving and not banning him and not, you know, demonetizing him on their platform. Meanwhile, and this is another important point you make in the piece, all of these deep state criminals whose crimes are legendary and very well documented in many cases, including the Biden crime family, for example, none of these people are ever held accountable for their outrageous crimes. The people that did 9-11, many of whom we know their names, um, the people that did 7-7, you talked about the USS Liberty attack, you talked about the Charlie Hebdo situation over in France. I mean, these are the kinds of people that are never held accountable for their actions. Meanwhile, Russell Brand is experiencing this trial by media in real time over quote-unquote crimes that probably aren't even really justifiable as crimes. Indeed. And, and 
the point I was making was that I think that there may have been some kind of intentional aspect to uh, provoking and amplifying the Me Too movement when it showed up in 2017, because it really does sort of echo the kinds of claims that we, you know, so-called uh, conspiracy theorists, that is people waking up to the reality of deep state impunity, had been pointing out. And we were starting to really gain uh, critical mass around 2017. And the point we were making is that there is impunity in America, that is powerful, abusive criminals have been free to break the law. Dr. Barrett? I think I may have lost Dr. Barrett. We haven't proved their guilt in a court of law, which means that, you know, we are, uh, uh, you could say that we're not respecting the presumption of innocence in that case, but it, we shouldn't because in order to bust deep state impunity, we need to be able to talk about the reality of the situation. So that's the real situation we were in. And suddenly along comes Me Too, and instead of the deep state, it's pretty much these individual, often celebrity men who are having the presumption of innocence tossed out, we're told that that's necessary because this is such a terrible abuse of power. Well, you know, the men who have pressured women in, into this or that sexual thing or have, you know, they hit on a woman who worked for them, which you're not supposed to do because there's a power inequality and all this sort of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's a real topic to discuss, but it's not even remotely close to the problem of deep state impunity. And so they've, they've really kind of uh, pulled a fast one and you know done a, a sort of a shell game thing where, where they've flipped the script so that you know, now the powerful oppressors who enjoy impunity, who we have to throw out the presumption of innocence when we talk about, it's not the deep state anymore. Now it's these you know, guys like Russell Brand uh, and, and so I, I really wonder if Me Too hasn't been used as kind of a psyop. Yeah, no, I think you make a good case for that exact scenario. Um, you know, I want to. There's a couple other topics I want to. I want to bring up that are very much related to this, and one of them is what's going on with Elon Musk. Um, I don't know if you saw. He had a, a sit down, um, like open discussion with uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Just I think it was last week. Uh, when Netanyahu was in New York for the UN General Assembly, they did this uh, like panel discussion um, on a stage uh, where they were focusing on AI, like the future of AI, which Israel um, has a lot of interest in and is trying to sort of, you know, not necessarily corner the market, but but be a key player in in the future of AI. So he's on stage with Elon Musk, and of course they start talking about the whole ban the ADL hashtag that went viral um, earlier this month. And Netanyahu was up there encouraging Musk to stop anti-Semitism on X, which is the new name for Twitter, um, within the confines of the First Amendment. And here's a direct quote. He says, I know your commitment to free speech. I respect that because I think it's the foundational thing of democracies, really. But I also know your opposition to anti-Semitism. All I can say is that I hope you find within the confines of the First Amendment the ability to stop not only anti-Semitism or, or roll it back as best you can, but any collective hatred of a people that anti-Semitism represents. 
And you got to love the mental gymnastics that goes on with people like saying things like this, you know, like, okay, you know, I, I love the first amendment. I know you respect the first amendment. I respect the first amendment. It's like the foundation of our society, but you need to shut down anti-Semitism. It's really, it's really mind blowing when you, when you read this stuff or hear, hear some of these people like Julie, uh, what's her name? Uh, Jacinda Ardent, the, uh, former New Zealand prime minister. She was at the UN recently as well talking about how she, you know, respects, of course, free speech, but, you know, we just simply can't allow disinformation and misinformation. She calls them new weapons of war, and there needs to be a global response to counteract these new weapons of war, according to her. So it's just, I mean, again, like the mental gymnastics that goes on with saying these like totally contradictory things. On one hand, we respect the First Amendment, but we have to shut down anti-Semitism and disinformation. I mean... The two don't go. The two don't go together. <laughs> well, then Yahoo is, is certainly the last guy who should ever be talking against uh, people using propaganda to whip up hatred of ethnic groups. I mean, Netanyahu is, you know, the a prime architect of that murder of 30 million Muslims I talked about through 9/11, and of course, he's also a prime architect or you know continuing perpetrator of the ongoing genocide of Palestine, which is anti-Semitic literally, in that what it represents really is the invasion of historic Palestine, which was full of genuinely Semitic people, as people who speak Semitic languages, you know, Arabic being the main Semitic language here. And the invasion was by people from across the seas who were not native speakers of Semitic languages. So the genocide of Palestine is an anti-Semitic jealous genocide. And it's being perpetrated by European Ashkenazi Jews. Call them Ashkenazi Jews, N-A-Z-I if you want. But the uh, Netanyahu, of course, is, is an expert on that kind of hate propaganda. That's He's built his whole political career on it. And so it's really pretty rich when he comes to America and says, well, yeah, I guess you guys have this First Amendment, but, you know, give us the privilege to continue to perpetrate genocide without being criticized and, you know, don't criticize any of the cultural factors that are contributing to the genocide that we're perpetrating uh, because then we'll get you for hating us. Well, you know, it's, it's obviously what's going on here is that a powerful abuser is using power to try to silence his less powerful critics. And, and that's not really uh, what, you know, they, they claim it is, right? The, the, and the people like, oh, you know, not, not just uh, BB, but the uh, ADL people and everybody else who's whining about anti-Semitism are all trying to portray it as you know, protecting a powerless group against powerful perpetrators when the reality is really precisely the opposite. They're trying to protect the most powerful group of perpetrators on behalf of an ethnicity that's not a victim ethnicity. It's an ethnicity of the wealthiest and most powerful people per capita of, of any in the West. So the, the whole thing is really a big lie. It all turns reality upside down. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. Well, and even the way Netanyahu characterizes anti-Semitism in this statement, he calls it a collective hatred of a people. And he's, of course, referring to Jews. And, and that's often what you hear from groups like the ADL and Jonathan Greenblatt, like anti-Semitism is this blind hatred of Jews and, you know, people wishing 
harm upon Jews or violence against Jews. And really, that's not what anti-Semitism is. I mean, I, I very rarely have I ever encountered anybody like that just blindly like hates Jews or wants to see violence committed against them. I mean, that is extremely rare. And when you do see that, it's often some sort of like government agent doing it to, you know, sort of stir up the pot and, and, and justify these sorts of things. But really what it amounts to is simply just like stating basic facts about Jews and criticizing Jewish power or just like recognizing their sort of agenda, the sorts of agendas that they push or recognizing the crimes of the of the state of Israel. I mean, that's really what anti-Semitism is, at least in the real world. And that's exactly what Elon Musk has pledged to de-amplify and basically shadow ban, as we were talking about previously. He's more or less gone along with all of these demands from the ADL. I mean, he was meeting with them when he took over the platform. Their whole policy is freedom of speech, but not freedom of reach, where, yeah, you know, maybe you can have your little Twitter profile and you can tweet out whatever you want, but no one's even going to be able to see it. So good luck with getting your message out there, right? That's kind of been their strategy. I mean, they have actually banned quite a few people, including James Edwards, who's a, you know, a regular contributor to American Free Press and many other people um, who, who are more or less on like the dissident right wing of politics. Um, and, and not because they've violated any terms of service, you know, with X or with Twitter, but largely, almost exclusively at the behest of groups like the ADL. Yeah, yeah. The ADL is a multi-billion dollar organization. I think their their annual operating budget, I believe, might be over a billion. It's huge. They're just so well financed. And they've worked with police departments and private investigators to amass massive files on people. In many ways, they're kind of an adjunct of the Israeli Mossad and uh, their organized crime affiliates as well. So there's there's a whole uh, machine there, and it's it's used to police the discourse, among other things. And it's great that people are trying to wake up on this. The ban the ADL hashtag was really a very needed development, but whether it turns the situation around or not, I don't know. I mean, it's just this, the structural factors of, you know, who's got the money and power and who doesn't. Uh, and, you know, even somebody like Musk, who has money and power, may not have the ability to keep it if they don't play ball. Yeah, and you got to love Jonathan Greenblatt has been on this, like, media tour uh, since this whole ban the ADL hashtag has really gained prominence. And, of course, he gets – you know, sympathetic coverage in the mainstream, and he gets to go up there and say, look, you know, we're we're just a small nonprofit based in New York. Meanwhile, they have offices across the country. As you said, their annual operating budget is probably close to a billion dollars. I'm not even sure exactly what it is. It's definitely in the multi-million dollar range, for sure, probably hundreds of millions of dollar range, if not even approaching a billion dollars. I'm not sure. But needless to say, they are extremely well-funded, well-funded, well-organized very dedicated nonprofit activist organization that actively seeks to shut down any sort of criticism or noticing of, of Jewish power and influence in society. And that's what they've been about from their very, the very founding of the organization. And now, I mean, in the aftermath of this ban, the ADL campaign, there was just a group of over 100 Jewish leaders calling for a total boycott an ad, total advertising boycott of X and they're also demanding that Apple and Google remove X from that from the app stores 
to where people wouldn't even be able to have it have the app like on their phone you know available through the the app store which i mean if this if these sorts of things were to be carried out i mean it would absolutely crush the platform so it's like nothing is ever good enough for these people you cannot placate them um you know and again elon musk has more or less gone along with all of these demands from the adl from the very beginning you know i mean i guess he's sort of pushed back a little bit like on his public you know, X page and, and is sort of, uh, you know, amplified some of these ban the ADL uh, hashtags. But that being said, he has more or less implemented their recommendations and has placated them and has entertained their ideas and continues to meet with them. You know, so it's it's just nothing is ever good enough for these people. They want to ruin this man, much like they want to ruin Russell Brand and Rumble. Yeah, that's right. Going up against uh, those kinds of powerful forces always does carry a price. But what else could you do? Uh, you know, I guess Elon is in the position where if, if he really went DEFCON 3, <laughs> I, guess, I love that. It would be, it would, <laughs> yeah. it would be an, interesting, uh, an interesting confrontation, but I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, yeah, I don't think so. Um, well, I guess we'll see. I mean, he's Elon Musk is a very he's kind of he kind of reminds me of like a Donald Trump type figure, but like just in the private sector, not in politics. Um, and who knows, maybe Elon Musk will eventually get involved in politics at some point. Um, but you know, he's kind of, you know, he says, he says a lot of good things and then, you know, you hear some things, some other things that he says, and it's, you know, he's basically going along, going along with the mainstream narrative on certain things. So he's kind of a mixed bag, but he definitely has a lot of potential. I mean, he has a lot of potential to, you know, to really make some changes and and to kind of do what he wants with the platform. And, you know, so I guess we'll, we'll kind of just have to wait and see, but I think it's very revealing how no matter what he does to appease these people, they just want blood. They want to ruin this guy, at least some of these more fanatical Zionist organizations and, and Jewish leaders. Um, Dr. Barrett, we're about to wrap up here, but I would be remiss if I did not at least mention um, RFK Jr.'s comments about 9-11, because this is a topic near and dear to my heart as it is yours. Here's yet another presidential uh, candidate in this upcoming 2024 election openly questioning the official narrative of 9-11. Now, I like what he had to say much more than uh, Vivek Ramswamy, what he had to say about 9-11. RFK Jr. basically said that he didn't know what happened. Strange things happened, I think was the direct quote. And this was in an interview with uh, Peter Bergen. Did you see the Rolling Stones story that came out about this? I'm sure you did. Uh, Yeah, yeah, I did. And the interview segment was really interesting to me in that Peter Bergen really completely discredited himself because the conversation came around to building seven and uh, RFK Jr. uh, expressed some doubt about the official story of building seven as well he should. And then Peter Bergen, who's written several books about 9-11, said that, well, of course it came down because the whole trade center fell on top of it. That is that's not even a, true according to the official conspiracy well, yeah, theory. That's just yeah. such a grotesque, insane lie that it completely discredits not only anything that Peter Bergen ever wrote about 9-11, such as his three or four books or however many it is, but pretty much anything he ever says about anything. I mean, if you're that outrageous of a liar about something that important, uh, you know, why should we believe you about anything? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I think we'll probably have much more to say about RFK Jr.'s comments about 9-11, probably in the next issue of the newspaper. But I I definitely wanted to mention that because I thought that was a very important story, an important development that sort of just happened as we were kind of wrapping up this issue of the newspaper. 
So, um, Dr. Bear, I guess we'll leave it there. Thanks a lot for coming on. I appreciate it. And I know you're over in Morocco now. I think the last time we did a podcast, you were still in the United States. So you've uh, you've made the voyage and have set up shop over in Morocco. Can you just tell us briefly what what's like what's life like over there? It's probably much more laid back and maybe enjoyable than the madness we see in America. Yeah, I live in Saidia, Morocco, which is a, a medium-sized town that grows a lot in the summer. It's a beach town right on the corner of Morocco, Algeria, and the Mediterranean. So you can find it on the map there. It's quite quiet and laid back uh, for nine months of the year, and then it becomes a madhouse in summer. We got here right in the middle of the summer. Morocco in general strikes me as a saner society than the United States. You know, it's still connected to its historical roots in, in religion and family. And it's, you know, they, they kind of go along with what the American empire tells them to do up to a certain point, just to avoid having more trouble than they need to have. But I think they've actually managed things pretty well politically. It's, it's actually a, a kingdom and to some extent a quasi slightly constitutional monarchy. It's more of a monarchy than it is constitutional but there's still kind of respect for authority and religion and good manners, of course. Uh, so it's it's really refreshing. Uh, people use nothing but cash. There's basically no credit card use at all. Most of the shopping is in the souk, the open air market, and it's all individual proprietors. And like I said, there are no shoplifting gangs and uh, crime is quite low. Uh, it's dealt with rationally, <laughs> which is one reason it's low. And I, I could kind of go on, but, you know, the people, all, all, a lot of folks in our audience have, have often these kinds of stereotypical ideas about so-called third world countries. And then they hear about the Moroccan Muslim immigrants in Europe and they imagine that, oh, Morocco must be a horrible madhouse. But far from it. And, you know, the, the problems in Europe are coming out of a particular demographic of like young, unattached men and uh, that, that's not really representative of Morocco uh, in general. So mm -hmm. uh, come, come and see for yourself. It's a pretty good place. I you was going to say. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, a lot, a lot of big tourist ahead. destination. Yeah, yeah. Big tourist destination. Uh, you have to be a little bit careful because, of course, it's there are poor people who do try to find ways to you know, mostly just beg from tourists, but it can be annoying. Sounds like a lovely place to be honest with you, especially where you're at. Where if you're near the beach, that would be that would be awesome to be right near the Mediterranean. And it sounds like a very orderly, well-structured society. Certainly much more orderly than some of the big cities in America these days. So that's not entirely orderly, John. Uh, the the culture there's an element of of kind of fertile creative chaos in the culture too. But in, but just we don't have. I don't see the kinds of you know extreme crime, street crime, that kind of stuff. That's not tolerated. Right, yeah. right. Okay. Well, cool. Thanks a lot, Dr. Baird. I appreciate it. You keep up the good work, and we will do this again in the future. Okay. Thanks, John. I enjoyed okay. it. Thanks. Have a good one. Take care.